Okay, folks, um, the title of uh, this message will be A Lot at Stake. Uh, lot is the only easy word in the whole passage, le-otter. All the, all the other words are so difficult, which is why I thought it would be cruel to have someone to read. Um, so what we'll do is I will read the passage, teach on it, and then move on to the next bit. Uh, last week in chapter 13, Andrew majored on how Abraham was trusting the promises. That was a, that was a good um, thing to lead into communion. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Lot, when given a choice, actually chose to pitch his tent near Sodom, which was a depraved, sinful place. He chose to live with people that did not trust God, did not like God, who preferred sin to God. And so we're in this part of the story where we're looking at uh, Lot and Abraham and the relations between them. Let me tell you another story. This is a true story. The date was the 27th of June, 1976. And armed operatives from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine surprised 12 crew members on an Air France jet and its 91 passengers. They hijacked the plane to a destination unknown. They headed to Uganda, to Entebbe Airport, where the hijackers spent the next seven days preparing for the next move. However, 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv, three Israeli planes secretly were boarded by a force of deadly uh, Israeli commandos. And without hours, they attacked Entebbe Airport, uh, or they attacked the hijackers under the cover of darkness. And in 60 minutes, raiding the terminal, they gunned down the hijackers and rescued 110 of the 113 hostages. Today we're going to look at another hijacking, another kidnapping by an international coalition. Uh, the coalition is a coalition of four kings, and we're going to look at another dazzling rescue. I kind of wish I'd done two sermons on this, because it could form a blockbuster movie. Um, but here we go. Um, we're going to see in our reading that Lot gets caught up in this international conflict. So first of all, kings wage war and Lot gets taken. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 4. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shina, Arioch king of Elzar, and Kedorlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Sh uh, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they'd been subject to Kedoleoma, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. Right, so... In verse 1, we read about four kings, and in verse 2, five kings. The four kings ruled over the five kings. But what happens is, the five kings rebel. 
Uh, where does Lot fit in? Well, he was living near Sodom, which was part of the, the coalition of the five kings who rebelled against the four kings. You following? The coalition of the four kings was stronger than the five kings and from a bigger area. The, the, the five kings were from the Dead Sea area. We'll, we'll call them the Dead Sea kings. The five kings, the Dead Sea kings. The coalition of four kings was from the east. We'll call them the eastern kings. Now, in terms of the eastern kings, Amraphael was from modern-day Iraq. Arioch and Tidal were from modern-day Turkey. And Kedorlaomer from Elam, modern-day Iran. The five kings had been subject to rule for 12 years, and then they rebelled. Okay, let's see what happens next. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shavah, Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fell, fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So what happened here is that the Dead Sea kings have gone out to war against the Eastern kings. Who won? The, East, the Eastern kings, because they were stronger. They're the four kings. The Dead Sea kinglets were no match for the experienced, confident troops of Kedorlaomer. And it seems like many of the defenders met a horrible death in tar pits where the five cities once lay. As they, as they fled, I guess they fell headlong into, these, into this black ooze and were submerged and drowned to death. Others fled to the hills and others, including Lot, were taken hostage. Okay, let's read what happens next, which is that Abram intervenes and Lot gets rescued, verses 13 to 16. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkel and Ana, all, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods 
and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. So there's the, the thrilling rescue. So verse 13 told us that one of the people who had escaped to the hills stumbled upon Abram's camp. And Abram was living by the trees. We're told this three times. And as a, as a reader, I'm, I'm wondering, why, why does the writer keep telling me that Abram lives near the trees? Well, trees are a reminder of the Garden of Eden. Abraham and Sarah are like a new Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were, were, were priests in the Garden of Eden. And Abraham and Sarah are like a new Adam and Eve. And trees are always, right through the Bible, a symbol of blessing and testing. So when we read, they live near the trees, you're thinking, okay, there's a test coming up. The, the, word, the Hebrew word for tree, it's. Every time you read that, there's, there's a test. Moses uh, encountered God in a burning it's, and God called him to go back to his people. So, so when we read tree, we read a blessing and testing. And the test here is, well, what's Abraham going to do? He could choose to do nothing, because Lot's made his choice, and Abraham had been very generous. Abraham had said to Lot, you know, you can go wherever you like, uh, because their families were, were, were fighting, were arguing, and Lot chose his fortune in Sodom. But Abraham did choose to take action. He did choose to act in faith. As one who'd been promised the whole land, he trusted in God here. And he was the original Braveheart, calling out 318 men to go and recapture, repatriate his nephew Lot. Now, what's happening here is really interesting because the author of Genesis is clearly anticipating the future history of Israel. So the people of Israel, as they read this, were on the verge of the promised land. And they would have read, oh, Abraham's had his own exodus, as they had had an exodus. Abraham went down to Egypt in the time of famine. Abraham came out of Egypt. Abraham spied out the land. That's what we've just done. And Abraham won a battle with very few people, which is what we need to do. So the, the, the people reading this would have thought, wow, if Abraham has acted this way in faith because he's been promised the land, then so can we. Where did Abraham get his, his courage? Well, it was his, his faith. Remember, three authors in the Bible call Abraham God's friend. That's what Abraham was above all, God's friend. And because he was his friend, he trusted God. He trusted God's word, not always, mind you. We're going to see that he sometimes told lies. Even though he was promised a son, he found a kind of another way to get a son with a concubine. But here he was trusting God. In Egypt, he distrusted God and he lied about his wife. But here, he won an extraordinary victory, which anticipates some of the victories of his descendants. On VE Day in Europe, when the Nazi power was defeated, the London crowds gathered in Mayfair, in Leicester Square, in Regent's Park, and someone in the throng would chant, who won the war? 
And then the crowd would chant back, we won the war. I wonder if a similar exuberant roar came from the 313 men. Who rescued Lot? We rescued Lot. Surely Abraham's name would have been famous right from the Euphrates to the Nile. Abraham the hero. But we're not left to think that. The text actually points us from Abraham's heroics to a greater king, seamlessly. So the next part of the story, Melchizedek turns up and Abraham gets blessed, verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share that and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ana, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So what the writer here wants us to do is to contrast and compare the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Both the king of Sodom comes out and the king of Salem. Here's a, a table you can look at comparing the two. And that's what we're meant to do. I'm sure the author's telling us to do this. I, I, I see that from the structure of the text. So in uh, the Old Testament, we have these chiasms all the time. I told, them, uh, told you about this before, that the top matches the bottom, and they all match, and then there's a punchline in the middle. There's a little chiasm here, if we look at the next slide, uh, where the king of Sodom has come to offer Abraham a worldly deal, but then Melchizedek offers Abraham a heavenly blessing, and then the king of Sodom's deal is refused. And what we're meant to do is to look at the punchline in the middle and to focus on that. Melchizedek offers Abraham a heavenly blessing. Melchizedek anticipates the future history of Abraham's descendants. Firstly, he's an example of a non-Jew who recognizes God's hand at work in the people of God. So the people who are going into the promised land would think, okay, here's the, here in the story is a non-Jew who recognizes who the true God is. Maybe that'll happen to us as well. Maybe there'll be people in the land of Canaan who will actually believe in the true God. And, and so it was. People like Rahab, people like later on Ruth and uh, Naaman, and then even the Magi who give gifts at Jesus' birth 
are non-Jews who recognize the work of the true God. Same as the centurion at the foot of the cross, the Roman soldier who looked up and said, surely this man was the son of God. Non-Jews. So he's a non-Jew. He's also priest and king. And reflection on that moves David to write Psalm 110. Lanre started the service with that. You can look at Psalm 110 later. It's foretelling the coming of a future prophet-priest-king. And the significance of all that is discussed in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7. You can also read that later. I haven't got time this morning. This is why I said it would be good to do two sermons on this. But what we need to recognize is that Melchizedek anticipates Jesus. Jesus is the priest king, the prophet priest king, whose hands were full of gifts and his lips full of words of blessing. Jesus is the good shepherd who prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies, just like Melchizedek prepared a table for Abraham in the midst of his enemies. It's interesting also how Abraham recognizes Melchizedek's blessing as the voice of God, and then he gives him a tenth of everything he has. Christians today also recognize that everything we have are natural gifts, whatever possessions we have are gifts of God, that they don't really belong to us. They belong to him as the source and giver of everything. And then Christians also seek to support God's work in the world by giving a tenth of all they earn as a sort of general principle. In giving Melchizedek a tenth and not accepting the king of Sodom's deal, you take the goods, I'll take the people. Abraham declared his dependence on God and it's expressed emphatically in verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I've sworn an oath to the Lord God most high. I'll accept nothing belonging to you. So Abraham's security was in the promises of God, not in goods. And this is what it means to be a friend of God. Our security, our anchor is in the promise the promises of God and in our friendship with God, not in our goods. It's a big challenge to us, especially at this time of financial crisis in which we're in. Our security is not in our bank balance or our pension or our property. Our security is in the Lord and giving a tenth of our income is a symbol of that. Lot, by contrast, had put his security in Sodom. Where is my security found? Where is your security found? Where is your anchor? Abraham's anchor as a friend of God was in the promises of God and in his friendship with God. Now, I said that Abraham had been tested. It's interesting to see on his journey all the tests that he has. And this is why I keep saying he lived by the trees. He lived by the trees. All these tests. First of all, right at the beginning, would he obey God's word and go to Canaan? Yes, he did. 
Then there was a famine, and there he failed. Abraham went into Egypt, even though there was no word from God to do so, and he told lies, and actually there he did choose self-preservation rather than trusting in the promises of God. Then there was a test when his family was breaking up, and his men were arguing with Lot's family, and there Abraham chose his priorities, and they should be our priorities. Number one, God. Number two, family. And then he put those above, material security. Test number four, would he trust God to actually win this battle that we've looked at today? Yes, he did. And then at the end of the passage, would he put his security in a worldly deal and secure his finances, or would he trust in God's blessing? As we've said, sometimes with his tests, Abraham acted in faith, and sometimes he didn't. The New Testament says that Abraham is an example of faith, but not always the perfect example. Folks, we need a perfect example, though. We need someone to pass the test for us. Back in chapter 3 of Genesis, mankind was given a test by a tree. Trust me in regard to the tree, said God. But humanity did not. They failed the test of the tree. But Jesus, when he was tested about the tree, went to the tree and was hung on the tree. God said to Jesus, trust me about the tree. And Jesus went to the tree and he bore our sin and he took our shame and our guilt. And he passed the test for us because, folks, we fail. Often our faith does not hold up. We often fail. But because, as we've sung, uh, of our, our Savior's obedience and blood as our high priest, we receive what he has earned because he passed the test of the tree. Folks, I wonder what test you are going through right now. Maybe it's to make some kind of worldly deal like Abraham. I don't know what that might be. Maybe it's whether you can stay off your addictions or trust God. We're all being tested financially right now, aren't we? Maybe there's a temptation to steal or cheat or act in some underhand way in business, cook the books, do something underhand, or even because, because we're so tight at the moment to actually stop giving to God's work and store it for yourself because ultimately you, you feel your anchor is there. It's going to be unbelievably hard this winter. I know it's a very stressful time. I know people are not putting the heat on. I know people are, are, are going without meals. Tough choices. But will we trust the promises of God? This is why it is important to, to be in a small group. As Lanray said, we want authentic community, and it's very hard in a big, big church. But do be open with your home group or somebody who is close to you about how your trust in God is faring right now. I just think generally, it's a tough time to trust people right now. But we can trust him, the prophet, priest, king, the real prince of Salem, 
the one to whom Melchizedek points, the one who blesses us and blesses us and then actually releases us as priests to bless the world. 